0: John Metcalf has been one of the leading editors in Canada for more than five decades, editing more than 200 books over this time, including 18 volumes of the best Canadian stories anthology. He's also the author of more than a dozen works of fiction and nonfiction, including Finding Again the World, Selected Stories, and An Aesthetic Underground, a literary memoir. He's senior fiction editor at Biblioasis and lives in Ottawa with his wife, Myrna, who's sitting in the other room, working hard. <laughs> Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. You've, uh, not just, how, how long has uh, Temerity and Goal been out?
1: Six uh, months or so, yeah.
0: And you have the temerity and gall as an immigrant to pass judgment on Canadian literature.
1: I call the book Temerity and Gall because W. P. Kinsella wrote a letter about me to the Globe and Mail that was published uh, that said that uh, John Metcalfe, an immigrant, has the temerity to criticize uh canadian uh, writing and in the most galling manner i think he said right. to, you know to, te- to to tell canadians about their own literature uh i was so amused by this letter and particularly the an immigrant um part you know because it revealed something that i've been writing about of course for years that um Puts Kinsella, who's a really an appalling writer, uh, into the you know extreme nationalist class. A, a writer very much in the tradition of being um, ultra nationalist in his views, and you know defensive about Canadian books and everything. And uh, I've always been rather irritated with uh, with Leon Rook, as a very close friend of mine who actually taught Kinsella uh, in a writing class. I think it was in Victoria many years ago. And uh, I I, I wish he flunked him out. Anyway, (laughs) so it goes.
0: Okay, so let's look at that immigrant. Label. (laughs) Label is good, yes. You grew up in Bristol?
1: No. uh, My father was a Methodist minister and... um, under the rules and regulations of the Methodist Church, I had to move his uh, ministry every five years to a new, uh, a, a new church in a different area. So I was born in Cumberland, actually, in Carlisle, spent my first years in Keithley in Yorkshire, and then uh, moved down to Bournemouth, in Hampshire and then to Beckenham, part of Greater London. When I left home, when I was 17 or 18, uh, I went to Bristol University and uh, from there emigrated to Canada. Okay, that's the connection.
0: So how are you like your father and unlike your father?
1: Well, that's a very interesting question. He was um, really a rather remote man. I I, I couldn't really, I mean, he was always a figure that was sort of, even within the household, was removed from everyone else. I I have no idea of the nature of his relationship with my mother. But for my brother and I, my my brother was five years older than me, Uh, I don't think we had any real relationship with my father at all. I mean, he rarely spoke to us. (laughs) Uh, And he was a a figure who exerted um, considerable and and, uh, almost comic authority within the house. I mean, for example, you know, if, if we were at the dinner table, you know, and my brother and I would get into an argument about something, my father would sit there and he would be gazing off into space and everything. And if the noise level rose... To a point that irritated him, he did this, <clears throat> and we immediately fell silent because that was the signal that.
0: Otherwise, what?
1: We never found out.
0: So there was—he didn't beat you or anything. No,
1: no, 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 no that would have required more involvement. Um, oh no, he just, he just silenced us with, uh, you know, his disapproval uh, and uh, heralded by this little cough. Uh, you know, that's it, boys, shut up. So, yeah, he was a figure of tremendous authority in the house, really, and, um, and a certain remoteness to, towards us. Um, although the interesting thing was that after he died, various people in... The congregation of the church where he had been last working uh, said to me, you know, how kind he was and how gentle he was when he went to hospitals visiting members of the congregation who were in hospital or ill, you know, in various ways. And they, they spoke about, you know, the depth of his pastoral care which contrasted... Astonishingly, to me, with my own experience of him, but uh, yeah, he 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 was a very interesting, uh, very interesting person.
0: Yeah, I guess you may have thought, how come he's so nice to them and he's not nice to me?
1: <laughs> well, I, I that was what I was struck by, you know, by these comments about his kindness and his gentleness yeah. and his, you know, involvement in other people's lives and that kind of thing. But, you know, he came from a quite strong Wesleyan background. I mean, uh, he'd grown up on a farm in Cumberland, you know, so so his background wasn't a a hugely educated or sophisticated one. Yet, uh, when he died, um, I went back to England, of course, and... uh, Um, I was looking along the books in his study, and I saw uh, uh, that uh, book, De Profundis, uh, by Oscar Wilde. And Mm -hmm. I'd seen it earlier when I was a teenager, and I thought it was a work of theology. And uh, so I took it out and looked at it and realized, of course, what it was. You know, and there were other strange things in his bookcase too, like you know, the poets of the period, like John Masefield, collected poetry and things like this. You know, and I yeah. thought this, this does not lock together with the man that I knew, and uh, you know, so that that was a fascinating thing to me, and uh, hmm. and I'm quite sure that you know he never spoke about such things with my mother.
0: So it sounds like a bit of a, an enigma.
1: Yeah, so he he, he was a, a strange person, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, in, and and in many ways, um, I, I I think very very much not connected with the world. You know, I mean, he was an unworldly sort of person, and uh, you know, which used to embarrass me when I was a, a boy. You know, when I was growing up. Um, he volunteered, I mean, most unusually, I don't know why, uh, but he volunteered to take me to the cinema once. And uh, cinemas in England at that time, the the, the seats were divided, you know, um, from the nearness or... Distance from the screen uh, with different prices. You know? oh, yes, yes. So you know the cheapest seats would be a shilling or whatever it was near the front where you you know nearly broke your neck looking up at the screen, and at the back of the uh, ground floor, you know, uh, of the cinema, the, the the seats cost two and six. You know because you, you had a really good view of the screen there and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. And I I even forget what the film was. But what I remembered, I mean, it filled me with horror, was he inquired at the uh, um, pay office, you know, where you went in, uh, how much the seats cost. And they said, you know, sixpence, ninepence and two and six or something. You know, whatever it was, I don't remember. And he said, oh, well, we'll we'll have two of the uh, sixpenny ones. And then we went in and he he looked at the screen and uh, you know and uh, in in the semi dark this was of course and uh, he says well we'll sit here he said these look more comfortable so we sat in the 2 and 6 minute seats there and a, and a girl came round and said you know can i see your tickets and he fumbles around and passes them to her and she said oh these you know you're in the in the wrong seats you know you'll have to move and my father said no no these are quite comfortable thank you and resumed his gaze you know into space and everything and i was of course overcome with (laughs) destroyed with embarrassment and um you know which which i again i suppose is an anecdote about how disconnected he was from from the world and you know and and really lived within well (laughs) something that i could scarcely imagine I don't know if I thought of it in those terms at that age. Um, You know, I just knew it really wasn't safe to go with him anywhere socially, as it were.
0: Without extreme embarrassment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get your love of the King James Bible from him?
1: Well. I mean, readings from it in church, of course, and and Sunday school and things like that, I mean, it was very, very much more evident, Uh, I mean, obviously within the Anglican church and I mean the Methodist church, uh, by the time that, that I'm talking about here, had lost or it largely lost its sort of working-class enthusiastic quality, you know, and had settled down and was very close to Anglicanism anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the readings from the Bible would have been, you know, from the authorised version. And uh, No, I, I just, as a, a child, sitting, hearing this language rolling out, I mean, you knew that you were connected with something pretty serious and important. And, of course, it was... It was read by distinguished grown-ups speaking from behind a huge brass eagle lectern, you know, and with the sun glinting on it, and the sonorous verses rolling out, and yeah, they quite wonderful.
0: What about your mum? Did you? I don't want to get too Freudian here, but I'll let I'll let the listeners do all that. But uh, what about your mum? Like, did you at least have a connection of sorts oh, with yeah. her, or oh,
1: yeah? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, no, she she was um, a, a very strong person, in, you know, not not an intellectual person in any sense. Um, mm. uh, but, uh, I mean, she, she was on my case, you know, like from beginning to end. I mean, I was, as a child, I mean, I was fairly unmanageable and um, it was she who taught me how to read time, you know, tell time on a clock or a watch. It took her about a year and it, uh, I, I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand what people were yeah. talking about. And, you know, and she grilled me in math and spelling and, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, all supplementary, of course, to school, which I largely ignored as much as possible. And really uh, I, I suppose in, 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 in one way sort of saved my life, really. I mean, because otherwise I'd have just been like wild, you know and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> stupid.
0: So you got a, a a degree in English literature? Yes. And then you moved to Canada?
1: Yeah. Well, I've been I taught in England for a couple of years, yeah.
0: And then to Montreal, where you were an English teacher, yeah. And you started to, and I think the way you put it is, it had all started with putting together texts so I'd have books to teach from that didn't involve Bliss Carmen, Stephen Leacock, or Hugh McLennan. Yes, how did that? transpire then? You you started putting together anthologies for your students to read?
1: Uh, no, no. Um, that was the aim. You know, I mean, after a, a couple of years, um, I realized that, you know, that, uh, you know, Two Solitudes and The Red Pony by John Steinbeck, which were two of the books at the school I worked in, had multiple copies of. And I could see that, you know, if I stayed on there teaching, I would have to teach these damn things, like, you know, forever. And um, I'd also realised that um, no Canadian books or any anything were being taught at all and they were not available. And, you know, uh, and I thought, well, I, I thought it was peculiar that... that uh, you know, Canadian writing wasn't taught in Canadian schools. It just seemed a bizarre thing to me. So I, I put together uh, a book called uh, 16 by 12, which was a book of short stories by Canadian writers with little photos of them in and commentaries and, you know, things like this and some stories that were suitable for, you know, young, young readers.
0: What do you mean put together? Did you approach, uh, who did you approach?
1: Well, I approached all the individual writers, and um, what about
0: the publisher?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, uh, Ryerson at the time. Okay, still going. Yeah.
0: It wasn't Lauren Lauren Pierce, though. It was, no, he died <laughs> no. in no. sixty. I yeah, think.
1: yeah, no, no. But it was. I mean, it was still a going concern as a, right. as an independent publisher then. It 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 it, it became McGraw Hill Ryerson some yeah. years later. And I got to know editorial people there.
0: You were flabbergasted that they weren't teaching their own literature. Is that how it worked? And then you decided, I need to...
1: Yeah, well, I I, I mean, I was not trying to do anything of a salvational nature. It was to prevent myself from going crazy, you know. um,
0: (laughs) Yes, with boredom.
1: uh, With boredom, yeah. And also, I mean, the people that I was teaching with were... Pretty ropey. You know, there was an anthology of short stories that, that I don't think had anything Canadian in them. It might have had Hugh Garner in or something like that, you know. Mm. But, I mean, there was nothing sophisticated in there whatsoever. I, I, I can remember the, the, there was a, a Hemingway story in this anthology. I think it was after the storm. And I can, I can remember to this day, like a staff meeting of the English department, where they were talking about this anthology, and and they were saying, what what what, what does this story mean? you know, um, what's his point? you know what, what what what's the moral of the story? And you know it was, and I wrote somewhere rudely, you know, that it was like frustrated, angry chimpanzees trying to get a peanut out of a medicine bottle, you know, that uh, they, 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 I mean, they were, well, Illiterate is the only you know thing that one could could say about them you know and I remember a, a, a female teacher very high up in the English department and uh, I was of course very lowly being a newcomer who wrote poetry and she had a chapbook of her poems published and one of them uh, a poem uh, an anti-alcohol. Poem, and I, I always remember a, a, a the last stanza of it began, "For ways we have against this brute, if offered sherry, say make mine fruit." And I thought that <laughs> this is this. It anyway, stayed with you though. <laughs> oh, unforgettable! Yes. This was a symbolized how yeah. awful. Yeah. Uh, the environment of the school was, you know, in intellectual terms. It, yeah, it was, it was just rigidly hopeless. So I'd I, I become interested in, in publishing, you know, for various reasons. And, you know, and then in the way that things do happen in life, you know, somebody that I'd known for, for editorial reasons at Ryerson had left to go to some other publishing house... And he got in touch with me and said, do you want a job writing some introductions to these school texts? And this went on and on and on. And, uh, you know, and gradually I sort of started to write or organise the writing of various books. And the head of the sort of English studies uh, Program of the whole Protestant School Board of Greater Montreal came into my classroom at the end of a, 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 of a day and he sat down on the desk and he said to me, I think you're the most interesting young writer, in the, uh, young uh, teacher in the system. And uh, he said, I'm, I'm, I've got a contract to do four books with J.M. Dent, mm-hmm. educational publishers at the time in Canada, um, and part of the Dent empire from England. Yes,
0: yeah, that would be Hugh Dent.
1: Um, I, I, I don't know yeah. the, the boss man. I only dealt at lower levels, but um, he and I worked together and did four or five of these books that were called Wordcraft, which were like exercises in vocabulary and, and uh, word meanings and all this kind of stuff. And you know, gradually, as these as these things went on, and, and you know, I wrote introductions to oh, God knows what, you know, uh, uh, novels and things that were being taught and. And at the time, of course, there was a, there was a sort of a, a bureaucratic system in Ontario where certain books were up on an approved list that mm-hmm. applied to the whole of the province oh. of Ontario. Mm-hmm. And schools could buy those in bulk, you know, but they could not buy any title that wasn't on that list. So no it really. was like a approved material for the whole educational mm-hmm. system of Ontario. And if you got a book onto that list, the money rolled in yes. because if yes. the teachers heard of it and then they said, ah, but can we get it? And they look up, Yes so they you know so the, these these uh, vocabulary books which were you know not a great deal of work but i mean you know you had to apply yourself and, and churn them out i was i was also amused one day when caroline addison who is one of the most brilliant of the short story writers in Canada, um, said to me that she had had one of these books in high school. Uh, 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 <laughs> the wheel turns. Eh? Uh,
0: but, um, so why, why the short story then, speaking of which? Why did you turn yourself to the short story?
1: Ah, well, it, it simply struck me that um, of all the forms... It was the one that interested me most personally because it was the most sophisticated kind of writing that I was aware of. That when it when it was being done brilliantly, Catherine Mansfield, uh, right. James yeah. Joyce, Dubliners, you know stuff like this. Okay. That you're dealing in, and Hemingway, of course, the the uh, the first book of stories you you're dealing in prose with structures that are essentially poetic i mean most prose struck me as you know well you settled down and you plowed through pages of it and you found out who did what and what was going to happen next which seemed to me like you know uh, oh interesting enough you know but nothing like the excitement of like being plugged into a mind like catherine mansfield's or mm-hmm. you know hemingway's in our time or something like that you read mm-hmm. i i still read to this day in fact i'm going to be writing about it again fairly soon those early little interparagraph pieces that hemingway wrote in 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 our time you know the 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 uh the refugees, the Christian refugees leaving Turkey and the, the long line of the, the, you know, of the expelled and the execution of the uh, cabinet minister shot against the wall of the yeah. hospital and those things. Just, you know, six, seven, eight, ten lines, whatever it is. Those struck me as so exciting and so interesting. And, um, you know, and earlier than this, I'd been reading with very little comprehension, but constable excitement because of the noise of it, were as a pound. And I'd been reading, you know, the very early poems of D.H. Lawrence, which were also imagistic. This was when I was in Canada, not in England. I I mean, I I achieved an honours degree in English without having read or having anybody mention a short story in England. And we were told, in fact, you know, that the syllabus really stopped at 1900 because anything past then was what you read for pleasure and, you know, Mm -hmm. was not really teachable. So by the time I left, I had done three intense years of learning Anglo-Saxon vocabulary and etc., and could sight translate the bloody stuff. To this day, I couldn't remember a single word of Anglo-Saxon. I think it was just a... An exercise in uh, in discipline, basically, because re- otherwise it was just reading nice things, and you know that really wasn't suitable for a university. So they decided to make it very difficult by chucking in learning a new language, and yeah. translating, and etc. But um, you know, I'd been reading some of the early Lawrence, which is intensely moving, uh, uh, you know, and and basically imagistic, uh, uh, you know, in, in in structure and all that kind of thing, and. Yeah, in
0: fact, you say about Imagism that your whole your whole career is really a a conversation a conversation with it.
1: Yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah, I, I still is. What know.
0: what is Imagism in a nice nice little nutshell?
1: Well, I mean, it was you know it was what Pound um, really oh. sort of invented the, wor- the 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 word and the idea and everything and. Uh, You know, he said to, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, H.D.? uh, Yeah, he said to H.D. in London, uh, when she'd been writing some of these uh, uh, Greek-influenced poems, he said, you know, you are an imagist. Because her her poems were just images. So Imagism, according to Pound, was, you know, the natural object is the symbol you know, is the meaning. And, and you know... Uh, and you don't need anything more than You that. don't need anything yeah. more. You don't need any clarifications, explication or anything. All you need is the picture, the image. And, I mean, that's the essence of it. And, and, uh, and also, you know, it was... He said that, you know, in poetry... He was talking essentially about poetry. He said, you know, that the rhythm of poetry should not be of fixed metre, you know, and like a... Um, what do you call it, on top of a piano that's clicking away, you know. A... Metronome. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, he said that the, the, the rhythm of, of poetry should be the rhythm of breath, of breathing. You know, so this is this is all very, very simple. But of course, when he postulated all this and wrote it down and everything, it was revolutionary at the time. He said it at a time when English prose was at its Depth of awfulness, you know, in sort of Edwardian flowery, you know, nonsense uh, that, that's really unreadable today. Um, and and he, you know, he he cut through all the nonsense and stripped everything down to the bare essentials again, so that you were left with this. These images, I I, I mean, Hemingway was involved in this whole situation far more than people thought. In fact, in 1923, Hemingway had gone to Sea Pound in Rapport, where he was living then. And he met there E.J. O'Brien, who was beginning to edit the best American short stories. So O'Brien says to Hemingway, have you got any stories? And Hemingway apparently had a manuscript with him of the short story, My Old Man, and he gave it to O'Brien. Now, O'Brien's policy was that he only republished things that had already appeared in a magazine. But by the time the magazine came out... Oh, that um, no, uh, magazine? It was it a Scribner's No, it was uh, three stories and ten poems. It was published in... You know, there's a little pamphlet thing that was published yeah. in 24, I think, yeah. In Paris, so O'Brien published it in in the best short stories of 1923, and he dedicated the volume to Hemingway, but yeah. he spelled Hemingway wrong, and um, you know uh, nobody would believe that Ernest Hemingway was this other Ernest way, as he spelled it, leading to much pain and distress. But um, you know the, Hemingway said later. Uh, I can't remember where he said it, but I I have the reference somewhere written down, that Pound taught him more about writing than anyone else ever did. And Pound, of course, was much taken with Hemingway's stripped down writing. and and, And according to Hemingway, showed him how to strip it down much more. And, you know, this it's so, Pound is so interesting. Uh, I was reading something something the other day, actually, about, you know, the fact that um, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which was then called He Do the Police in Different Voices, Pound took it, it was 19 pages, and cut it to six which is the poem that we have now? It, well, there was one that came one out a, a few years back, yes. and now a new book's just come out because it's showing the hundreds, exactly right? what Pound did yes. and saying how brilliant as an editor he was. You know, and then there's HD's uh, Greek, po- you know, I, in inverted commas, Greek poems that had that imagistic quality of just these strange pictures of, you know, lacking entirely context or you know, or, or, or any conclusions or drawable morals or anything else, they just dare on the page. And, of yes. course, these are very like pounds translations of the Chinese poetry, I mean, which are the same kind of things and then some of the most powerful, uh, pounded in a very early volume of, of, of these Chinese poems called Cafe, a very rare book. The difficulty of this kind of writing, it, it, it's... Essentially there in short stories, and, you know, Hemingway did it, Pound did it, the imagists did it, which was to place upon the reader the total responsibility for understanding what is being done. You know, Northrop Frye wrote very, very cleverly, I thought. He said that modernism, because that's basically what we're talking about here, Mm. It didn't arrive in Canada until, you know, like a 100 years after it had been going on everywhere else in the world. Um, Fry wrote that modernism was an embattled position whose purpose was to engage the reader. And he said that what the modernist work does is that the author throws the ball and it is entirely up to the reader to catch it. Yeah. Well, of course, what happened... Was that you know only a few people were capable of catching it, <laughs> and the same is true today. Uh, well, let's
0: let's yeah. look at that then. If, could we say that that describes your taste, taste, sensibility,
1: um, sensibility? I'd be more like it. Um, I, I sort of hammer away in everything that I write on a, on a critical level. of of saying, you know, you must learn to become a good reader. And, you know, reading people like, you know, shall we say in Canadian terms, Louise Penny Mm -hmm. is not going to teach you how to read. And you've got to... Uh, submit yourself to the work and you've got to learn what it is that has been going on for the last hundred years, you know, and how many more years are we going to have to teach people how to read? But it, I mean, it, it, the, the, the battle still goes on. I'm not sure I understand it. Well, it, it's because it's the starting place, really. I mean, it's, it's like, um, oh, I don't know how to say this. I mean, it's, it, it, it's so simple um, yet not simple The essence of what's going on in in modernism is, say, film. Now, if you go back to the earliest of films, you know, you'd see things like, uh, you know, silent films we're talking about, you know, Mm -hmm. very, very early things. Mm -hmm. You'd have things like. There's a chap, you know, uh, and he he goes to a house and he knocks on the door and a maid comes and she opens the door and the camera follows him and he goes into the living room and this lady gets up and and he sort of uh, has his straw hat clasped to his bosom and he bows and kisses her hand and they talk about something. You know, there are subtitles on the screen. And then uh, he leaves and the maid opens the front door for him and you see him going down the front steps and, and on onto the street. So that I always say to people, that is what traditional writing does. This is what 90% or more of the world's fiction does. Whereas within a very short space of time, the people who made pictures realised We don't have to do all that crap. We could just go cut and it moves from the drawing room to the street. And we have to. We fill in the gap. He has now gone out through the hall and uh, down the front steps and now he's in the street. Nothing difficult to understand in that. And, uh, you know, and then they did. The the vocabulary of cinema did fade-outs, close-ups, middle shots, distant shots. They did all kinds of... They they invented a new grammar. And that grammar had been invented, you know, almost uh, at the same time as the language of film developed. So, I mean, they were basically aspects of the same thing. I mean, did you know uh, that I think it was in 19... or something like that, or 1904, something like that, But that, that Joyce, James Joyce, opened two cinemas in Dublin. It's I think I
0: read it in the book.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, yes. it's astonishing. People uh, don't seem to make the connection. They don't sort of say, you know, Ulysses.
0: I understand that, but how does that teach me to read then?
1: Well, because it teaches you the lesson that you move from picture to picture to picture. And you stop thinking, well, I don't understand that because here he was in the sitting room with this lady, but now he seems to be crossing a street. You know, what's going on? So what's demanded of the reader by modernist writing or any decent writing these days is... The, the reader has to develop the ability to fill in the, the blank spaces, right. um, so, right. which, which means that the reader has to fill the, the empty spaces with his or her own emotional grasp of what's going on. They have to make... They have to make the story for themselves.
0: And sometimes the gap might just be a little bit too big.
1: It might be, yeah. Uh, but in that case, you know, possibly the, 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 the fiction has failed. Uh, that, that's entirely possible. I think it applies to quite a lot of poetry, for example. But um, really, it's, you know, it's a very simple thing. The, the sort of the modernist
0: movement... This is how you define what's good. Yes? And what I'm trying to get to is, is this, on page, uh, on page 11. I've always assumed that the central task of a literary editor is recognizing, and the key word is recognizing and helping along with sympathetic criticism, unknown and little-known writers. Yes. So... What do you recognise?
1: I recognise uh, the the power and the immediacy of image, of writing, of the emotional tension that they can create, and the lack in their sentences of sloppy. Repetitive nonsense. Um,
0: okay, so your sympathetic criticism is getting rid of that sloppiness.
1: Yeah, or, or, you know, there won't be a lot of the sloppiness, otherwise I wouldn't be recognising it. I would be right. dismissing it. Right. Um, <laughs> okay. um, and I I do, as an editor, I mean, I see a lot of um, manuscript, and I uh, people don't believe this, but I, I can usually tell... Very often, with one sentence, uh, usually a paragraph, certainly, after two or three paragraphs, absolutely, the first page, I can tell you whether the books are going concern or not or no, no, that 's not fair whether the whether the writer of the book is worth reading or not, I, I think yeah, yeah or working know. with or working with or even considering yeah uh, considering reading on and seeing further. Um, and you know you can change your mind if uh, if, if if the thing gets uh, slacker or you know. Uh, but but generally speaking, you can see and sense that within a very short pl- uh, piece of, of writing. You know, I mean Con- uh, Connolly, Cyril Connolly, you know, said that you could uh, uh, you could taste a vintage by a sip.
0: That, yes. You know,
1: you don't need to drink the whole bottle to decide whether it's good wine or not. F. R. Leavis, a much maligned man, said, "There is no such thing as the meaning of a poem. What there always is—and I mean the same applies to prose—the the poem is merely black marks on a page. The job of the reader is to recreate the black marks on the page, which means that that the act of reading, which you were you were asking about yeah. a moment or two ago." Yeah. Uh, is a recreation of something that somebody has put... It's almost like a score, which you yeah. can follow.
0: And it's your interpretation of that score. Yeah. Well, the reader interprets to, to, to the score. An
1: extent.
0: The music I hear is going to be different than your music. It has to be. We're They're different. Not
1: in, in that we are different sensibilities and different minds and etc., etc. But, I mean, the, the marks on the page do have fixed meanings.
0: But one of the joys of my life over the, over the decades has been, it's exactly what you're talking about, reading Shakespeare and taking hours over each scene, mm-hmm. debating with friends what that word means.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, I mean, that, that, th- this is true, but there are parameters to it.
0: I mean, if, yes. if, you know,
1: if if I if I see blue and you see yeah. red, that, I a mean, problem. <laughs> this, this is not true. I mean, this is you know, one of us is wrong.
0: I <laughs> so think you red. see red a lot more than I do. Could be. Just uh, talking then about editing, and this is this is from the book Temerity and Call, and this idea of how you determine if something is good. You say innovative shapes must be forged in language that is precise and quick to the touch, like touching skin. So you mean the feeling you get?
1: Mm-hmm. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Well, I yes. say. I, I actually, I said, it must be like touching skin or the fur of an animal. That, that there is something so electric. And sensual about touching skin or a, an animal's, say a dog's coat or something like that—that that is unlike any other sensation that's known to us. Okay. And it's you are being put in touch with life, with with uh, the concentrated power that somebody has poured into those words, and you are suddenly plugged into their electricity. And that is how you can tell good writing from bad. And. Uh, Squadrons of academics will say to me, Well, that's very fanciful nonsense and etc. etc.
0: And you're but, putting your money on the line, or oh, uh, or yeah, Dan yeah. Wells or whomever yeah.
1: it might yeah. be, yes? Yeah, well, I mean it's uh it's like uh you know having the memory of licking your finger and sticking it in elect in an electric socket. Yeah. I mean, you know it's happened and I think 99% of academics have never experienced it. Okay.
0: Tell me about then taking the jump or moving to Oberon Press.
1: Ah, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd written a novel um, called Going Down Slow, which uh, m and published. Mm-hmm. Um, I found out actually, this is a very interesting little story. I found out actually just the other day, I mean literally, that my move to MS yeah. had been engineered by Mordecai Richler. I'd, I'd met Mordecai in Montreal at some bean fest at the Ritz Hotel for, you know, I don't know who's there, Weaver or something was there, and Richler and some other people. And I was talking to him and everything, and I I saw a book that had been written about um, about Weaver, uh, a biography and uh, an account. Um, Knave, was that? Yes. yes, yes, Montreal writer and. Uh, Uh, she reproduced in there a letter that Mordecai had sent following meeting me at this binge at the writ saying that I think that you should uh, publish this guy and uh, get him free from, um, you know, Clark Irwin. Clark Irwin would have been... They were the ones who did the the two volumes of... um, New Canadian writing 67 and 8 or something. And Clark Blaze was in the first one, and I was in the second one. Okay. And they were put, those those were put together by, um, oh dear, the chap that wrote The Perilous Trade. Oh,
0: yes, yes, McSkimming.
1: Yes, Mc, Roy McSkimming. He was working at, at Clark Irwin as a student, summer, summer job as a student doing something or other. Uh he said, you know, these very good short story writers, we should do these two books. <laughs> so he, he started my career in, you know. Yeah. know. Okay. Uh,
0: so you went to McClellan and Stewart.
1: Yeah. And, and uh, then what? Well.
0: Because that was brief, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. I, I only stayed there for um, the year that that book was out because I, I felt that uh, I was just being treated by them very offhandedly.
0: You mean what, they weren't paying attention to you? No,
1: there was no, and, and you know, there was no publicity. There was, you know, and... and uh, Which is uh, unusual, because that's what he's known well, for. Well, you see, I I interpreted that as as being really that, uh, or uh, something I realised later, that Jack McClelland was really only comfortable with the people, you know, of about his own age or people he himself had found. And, he, you know, and he put yep. all his interests there. So I was dealing with Anna uh, Zagathy then, as a, uh, now porter. And um, she, you know, she was a, a pleasant and everything, but I really only had any contact with her whatsoever uh, during the actual sort of lead-up to the publication of the book and that kind of thing. And then heard nothing from them for a year. And I thought, this is, you know, I, I'm not in a commercial... I don't want a commercial situation. No. I want a situation where there's somebody interested in what I'm doing and understands it and, you know, and, and would promote it and everything. And I thought, well, you know, the answer is Oberon at the time, it seemed to me, you know, to be the place. Yeah, so I, I, I moved over there and um, published there for a while.
0: Okay, this is how you this is how you describe the, the person that ran it, Macklin. Uh, Macklin,
1: um, Macklin. Macklin. Michael Macklin, yeah.
0: Yeah, and describe him as <laughs> he was ungrateful, blindly autocratic, tirelessly arrogant, grossly insulting, while seemingly unaware of being so, and hampered in his literary and nationalistic aspirations by an undeveloped literary taste and strange loyalties to unlikely writers on his list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's so a, very, it,
1: a very harsh judgment to make, but yeah. uh, he was an impossible person.
0: How, much, how many books did you do with, with, with I him? I think
1: two, as far as I can recall, two short story collections, yeah. But I edited for the press later. No, I, I did uh, Best Canadian Stories.
0: Because uh, they, had, they had that franchise? Or?
1: Uh, they, 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 it had been started by David Helwig. Yeah, in, mm-hmm. in um, Kingston? Uh, it, well, he was in Kingston at the time, yeah. So he, he, after two or three years of editing that anthology, which actually became very important, Dan Wells and I had took over the franchise when Oberon went out of business and and we're bringing out Best Canadian Stories now. And uh, next year, we're bringing out 50 years anthology of the best stories from... I was going to say, it's like the
0: the booker of the booker, the the best of the best, I guess, right?
1: Yeah, theoretically speaking, yeah. (laughs) I I edited it with uh, Clark Blaze. For Oberon back then? For Oberon, yeah. yeah, And also following him with Leon Rook. So
0: that's when you sort of forged your friendships.
1: Yeah. You know? uh, well, um, yeah, and I—I I, I got Leon published there. Uh, his first book in Canada, I took two. Because he's American, right, or was? Yeah. 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 His first book came out with uh, Louisiana State University Press. Uh, Last one home sleeps in the yellow bed. It's called. Uh, yeah, and I took, I, I, I took a collection there called the Love Parlor to, to uh, uh, Oberon, and uh, Michael Macklem said to me, well, I'll publish it on your say-so as long as I don't have to read it. And um, mm. I said, fine. I mean, the, the the arrogance and the...
0: But I don't know if we the, want the, to get into that necessarily. Well, but. I
1: mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing because it, it, it he was seemingly unaware of how offensive he was being to other people you know i mean he would say the most awful things statements that left people uh, who heard them like acutely embarrassed or uncomfortable and seemingly totally unaware that that he had said anything so you know uh, so you know he was a very difficult man to get along with
0: so from there you moved to ecw yeah tell me about
1: that well that was run by two friends of mine um Uh, Jack David and Robert Lecker.
0: How were they friends?
1: I got to know them, um, you know, over the years. Uh, They were both at the time academics and they were publishing, you know, so what I was publishing and what they were doing sort of vaguely touched and, you know, and as one builds a network of uh, associates and that kind of thing, friends and... And they were they were busily engaged at, uh, at first as as, as gra- uh, postgraduate students in putting together uh, ECW magazine, which was all concerned with Canadian writing, and um, and then they published a series of books, you know, Canada's major writers, and you mm, know criticism, and, yeah. Uh, criticism, yeah. So you know, I was acutely aware of what they were doing, and um, and I liked both of them, and we got on very well together, and. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. so... It's hard not
0: to get along with Jack. I don't know Robert so well,
1: but... Jack uh, accepted to to publish a a book I'd written, uh, and I wish now, earnestly, that I had never written it. Uh, It's called General Ludd. Fiction? uh, Fiction, yeah, a novel. Big book, I'm afraid. I I, I would say, looking back on it now, that I'm acutely embarrassed by it, and... um, uh, I wish I'd never written it, and I, I said I can remember saying to Robert Lecker when it was sort of in production, you know, if I if I w- had any sense, I'd pull this now and not allow it to be published. And uh, what's yeah. so bad about it? well, it's ill written and it's uh, full of ideas, um,
0: which kind of goes against you. Which goes against yeah.
1: everything that I sort of believe yeah. in, really. Right. Um, right. I, I I used to say to to my best of my students you know uh, when I was teaching high school and uh, in in fact teaching you know junior college I used to say to them if you have an idea go and have a lie down until it goes away (laughs) uh, so this 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 dreadful book uh, is bulging with ideas. Oh
0: great look uh, okay I don't want to get too sidetracked on the ideas but what was the best idea coming out of that book?
1: Oh, I don't think it... it, it
0: Has any good, good, good idea. No, it
1: was just a mess. Oh, it was just a mess.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, so you, how long were you with ECW for then?
1: Oh, just for that one Just book. for that
0: book, okay. And they uh, lost money on it, I
1: guess. Well, yeah, because I'd also yeah. said to them at the same time that they ought to take on Hugh Hood and Leon <clears throat> Rook. So they put us on the road together and, you know, we went, from Montreal out to Vancouver with stops uh, all along the way and everything, and uh, it brought them to the brink of ruin. Oh, you know, dear. financially. And, oh dear. And and so you know that that really didn't work out, and then uh, I, I moved on, I guess, to Porcupine's Quill at that point. I see again, wanting to remain with a small press where where you know one had an emotional relationship with people who were printing, publishing, and, you know, that kind of thing.
0: So, uh, how's the emotional relationship with Tim Inkster,
1: then? Well, I mean, it was okay, but, I mean, Tim is not somebody who is, um, what shall I say, very emotionally uh, relaxed. And uh, he he would find, I think... uh, intimacy of any kind, very uncomfortable, and uh, you know, so you're always sort of...
0: Sounds like your father.
1: A bit distant, yeah. Uh, right. But um, I, I, I worked for Tim for, I think, 17 years. Oh, my goodness. I edited over, I think, about 250 books during that period of time for Porcupine's Quill. Wow. The thing was that, that Tim is... Uh, is a very fine craftsman. And what he was really interested in was the printing. Yeah, And he loves paper and he loves press. And he actually, in the basement of his house where the press was headquartered, he had a Cord Heidelberg press in the basement on which he printed all this stuff.
0: So on the face of it, it sounds like a good fit. You do the editorial, he
1: does the printing. uh, Well, the interesting thing was that... um, after about working there for about two years, during which he was like sort of extra guarded, he relaxed the a little years, bit in yeah. around about the third year, and he sort of more or less used to say to me, what are we publishing this year? So I was I had more or less total editorial control of what went on there, which in, in one way was good, because I could do what I wanted, and in another way, it was not so good because it gave me the leeway to make some choices that I shouldn't have made. Um,
0: Mistakes? Which, uh, yeah.
1: Well, books that, you know, books that were all right, but yeah. they, you know, they weren't up there where I was really yeah. thinking. You know, and, and my big mistake, and, and of course this was helped by the fact that there was nobody saying to me, really you want to publish this yeah you know yeah there was second nobody, opinion there was nobody to quarrel with me and um mm. uh, and, and I gave way to kindness you know which yeah. is always a mistake in publishing uh, yeah because
0: everyone wants to get it published and if you're able to say yes we're going to publish your book what a you know what a thrill for them
1: yeah yeah the peaks of publishing I mean were so distant and immense you know like, Alice Munro and Amos Gallant and Mordecai and you know and et cetera. Et cetera. What do you I, mean, I, do you mean I, the peaks I, were so distant? Well, mean? they were so huge and so unapproachable. I mean, you know, for for the average run of writers, their
0: success, you mean their ability? Oh, their ability. Oh, right. wow,
1: success is irrelevant. No. Uh, I mean, for example, Mordecai was very successful financially. Today, he isn't taught, I'm told, in a single university in Canada. Gone. So, I mean, what what happened to me there, basically, was although I did some tremendously important and terrific books there, actually. Like what? Oh, um, I, I published all of Clark Blaze. Four volumes, five volumes.
0: There was an article recently in the... Mm basically saying, this is this is the man.
1: Yeah, yeah. I published Clark, I published um, Leon, I published uh, Caroline Addison, uh, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, you go yeah. on and on. Well, that's the thing, though. The thing is, though, 90% of it,
0: everything is... Well, that, that, You know that, what
1: I mean? That's what publishing is. That's exactly true, yeah, yeah. But, I, I mean, the, the big fault that I made there was that this kindness... You know, leads to sloppiness, really. Yeah. yeah. And and I mistook.
0: Well, plus, was it your money on
1: the line? No. There we go. But but I mistook foothills for mountains, which is the mistake that kindness leads you towards. And I I no longer have that kindness. And uh, so the editing that I'm doing for Biblioasis where I'm just coming up to eighteen years of publishing yeah, with yes. him <laughs> uh, with Dan. Well. I, I'm not making that mistake, I don't think. Okay.
0: Okay, so let just see that got another quote about images and I just want to go back to that. Mm-hmm. All your life has been a constant conversation with images and And the assemblage instructions, remove similes, compress, replace adjectives and adverbs with an accurate verb, imply, don't explain, understand silences, employ white space, embrace your dictionary, elegance does not lie in elegant variation, make the reader work. So we've pretty well covered that, right?
1: I think so, yeah. Okay. The, the, the business about making the reader work
0: yeah I
1: mean is, is essential though in, 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 in understanding what lies behind all the editing that I do that if you look at a conventional writer who is successful in terms of sales and that kind of thing you will find that in nearly every sentence there is some thing that tells the reader how to respond to the line that's been written, you know, like... Um, um, has, How is that? Give me an example of that. Well, you know, he sat down gingerly. Um, okay. She smiled graciously or, you know, etc. There's always a word in there somewhere undermining the, undermining the sentence in that it's spoon-feeding the meaning of the sentence to the reader. So you really need
0: to pay attention to those oh, words as a reader, obviously. Oh,
1: absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I, put it this way. Um, this is this is something I'm very fond of saying to people, and they, a lot of them don't understand what I'm talking about. I always say to, to the uh, writers that I'm working with, stop explaining things to yeah, people. Yeah. Make the reader work at understanding, because... If you make the reader work, A, you're writing better and tighter and harder, but you're also giving the reader a job to do. And I said good, right. good readers, I, I always say this, and I, I absolutely believe this, good readers will stop reading if your writing is sloppy because they want to work. They are like sheepdogs. And if you don't allow sheepdogs to round things up into well, okay, smaller... Let's, let's... And, no, no, just listen. Okay. If you don't allow the sheepdog to circle and okay. round up the sheep to a smaller and smaller and smaller circle, they mope and they're unhappy. Okay, well, but, but, but that's exactly <laughs> the reason why you must engage the reader in activities that exercises their imagination.
0: Right. Uh, I, I would, wouldn't demean the reader quite like that and call them a sheep. I'd call them like a movie, direct, oh, I am a movie dem- director.
1: I'm, I'm not demeaning them by, by comparing them. I love sheep <laughs> Okay. And their intelligent. Of course. Yes, very. Yes. yes. Okay. I mean that's why they get bored with reading things that doesn't challenge them to okay, do their yes, job.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay.
0: Yes. Okay, so along these lines, one of my favorite short stories ever is Chekhov's The Kiss.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And in that story, as you probably recall, mm-hmm the the main character goes to a dinner party and gets up from the table and somehow gets into this dark room and a woman kisses him he doesn't even see her and if you if you read the passage very closely you're not even sure if he's actually kissed but what happened with that story the more i thought about it is the, the way that he reacted to that kiss was—he was, felt wonderful. He he basically went through a passionate love affair in his mind just because of that maybe kiss. These actions that were described opened up the whole re- reality of what it's like to fall in love passionately. What your mind does—it races forward. It hopes. It's quite extraordinary, but it relates to exactly what you're saying, yeah. well, which is all the work that I'm doing and enjoying doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, I mean, Chekhov uh, was, was really the sort of um, uh, uh, imagist. I mean, he's the beginning of it all, you know. I mean, uh, when Norman Levine died, mm-hmm. a great, great Canadian short story writer, I wrote an obituary for uh, one of the UK papers, and I said, if he believed in anything, it was probably Chekhov. You know, and I was trying to say, you know, he didn't believe in nation or race or, you know, any of those huge abstractions. It was the work in the short story form of Chekhov. Yeah, and I mean, it it, it, it comes down... uh, Comes down from Chekhov into Imagism, and I mean the the whole the whole group of stuff is related. Um, But lots of people would go straight back to Chekhov and say, yes, this is this is where it starts before Pound. Yes, because Pound didn't get at it till a little bit later, but uh, and from a different angle. But yeah, uh, it's 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 the essential nature of the of the reader to to the writer. And I mean, when, when you think of, oh, I don't know, the sort of book that I might look at late at night when I'm tired and I want to read a few pages before I fall asleep, you know, I might read something by David Balducci or something, which is like, which is like taking warm milk with opium in it. I mean, you know, you, you, it, it's so drivelly, you know, that you just fall asleep. No, I mean, the difficulty is is inherent in the whole modernist position of, on the part of the reader. Yeah,
0: Yes. It's a challenge.
1: So, I mean, when people say, well, if you're so good, how come you aren't rich? I mean, the, the you know, the answer is that um, the number of people who want to put in the hard work of reading and understanding uh, is very small.
0: That's the thing. <laughs> Well, and you make the point throughout the book, you quote John Meisel talking about this sort of limited audience. Yeah. Uh, the
1: thinness of a cultural class in Canada.
0: Yeah, and you've spent a lot of energy over the years kind of bemoaning and getting angry about that. Probably we don't have that big a population. It's just, it, I don't know why you get so upset about it. It's just that's the way it is. So I mean, uh, uh, why do you get so upset about it?
1: Well, I mean, what we're talking about here is, let's say, and I'm being generous Mm. in these figures, that a well-reviewed collection of short stories in this country, and I mean a really well-reviewed one, Mm. is lucky to sell 500 copies. Out of a population of, what are we now, 40-something, 42 million or something like that, it means like, you know... We we have so few readers in this country that we cannot talk about a national literature. It's, it's ridiculous. You can't have a natural national literature with three hundred readers, you know. Um, yeah. Because you're you're just edging into fantasy land, and and the reason why I get angry about it. I mean, it's not that I am. Criticizing the readers—it's that uh, those people who ought to be at the top of Canadian society in terms of intelligence, education, upbringing, sheer luck—in mm. in what they grow up to be—there yeah. must be more than five hundred. The academics—I mean, they're a farce. They, but you get
0: there. This sounds angry.
1: Yeah, but but but. I am angry
0: about it. But what can you do about it? What? Ah. Get angry? Yeah. One
1: thing I can do about it. Your heart it. hurts. Yeah, but but listen, listen. In you, If you put all the people who teach Canadian literature or literature of any kind, it, it, you know, there are very few of them left as far well as I can see. Mm. If you put together... Every English department in the country, in every university, in every college, you'd you'd be hard-pressed to find one with any real understanding of what literature is about. They'll tell you all about various political movements. Uh, They'll tell you about all kinds of nonsensical, you know, things about, you know, race and... uh, sexual preferences and, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. Harold Bloom pinned it down beautifully when he said um, that, you know, uh, we are living in a period of time when in a, you know, universities are more interested in Victorian women's underwear than they are in uh, Charles Dickens or Robert Browning. And, yeah. I mean, this is true. And, and, and yes, uh, th- that is appalling.
0: Okay. Well, let's, let's get back to fine writing. Mm -hmm. Here's what you say. Fine writing should make us abnormally receptive to the verbal world so that the verbal world can return to us the real world more intensely seen and felt. That is what great poetry does to us. Fine prose, too, should strip us bare. Mm -hmm. And then you go on to say... The point I'm asserting is that fine writing demands that we open ourselves to it demands of us a naked, passionate response.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That simple thought underlines everything that this meandering book is suggesting. So what is a naked, passionate response?
1: Well, it's one where you are emotionally devastated by what you are reading. It's really very simple.
0: Uh, this is what you this is what you want in a book. Oh, yeah. This yeah. is your selection criteria. This is how you acquire. Oh, books. Uh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I quote in that book somewhere the the, the wonderful comments of a, a Scottish writer who you know, was talking about the short story and said uh, the short story is small in the way that a bullet is small. You know, it should strike you and knock your fucking head off is what she wrote. And um, that's exactly exactly it. The, The point that I'm trying to make is that you are not in a fit state to distinguish between a good book and a great book or a bad book and a good book and and subtle variations within unless you have at some point in your life experienced reading something that emotionally destroys you something that is so fantastic that its impact on its emotional impact on you is so great that you know You give up. You say, that is a vision that, you know, is so emotionally important. And it's those kinds of experiences. Probably we only have it, you know, two or three times in a lifetime, if Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. By which we must judge everything else. Yeah. So if somebody says, you know, let's take a writer that I have a very high opinion of, Mordecai Richler. And compare Mordecai's, uh, say, St. Urban's Horseman, which I happen to think is his best book, but... um,
0: Won the Governor General's Award.
1: Ah, well. (laughs) But if you compare that with, I don't know, uh, books that have, you know, or or literary experiences anyway, if not books, but, you know, that, that have had that same kind of impact on me, would be... Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy is a book that just, you know, destroys you. I mean, it's just a monstrous book. Yeah, I t- it's or, funny. The word destroy, I just, I, I, I'm, I, I mean by destroy, it, it knocks down all your defenses, all yeah. your quibbles, all your yes buts. It's a thing that just, it's like being hit by a Mack truck.
0: It is kind of a passionate. It's like passionate love, in yes. a way. It's like it that powerful. It is if, if you do meet the right book.
1: It is passionate love. That's what it I like
0: that life. better than destroyed. Um, okay, so something, we,
1: something else that did that to me. For example, yeah. I, I mean, I'll give you two examples from the theater. I mean, you can go to the theater lots of times and be, you know, yeah. engaged, entranced, uh, you know, titivated, whatever. I remember. When I was still at Bristol University, and so this would have been within four years of the first publication and performance Mm -hmm. of Waiting for Godot, a group of students at Bristol, one of whom was French, and therefore sort of au fait with what was going on in Paris, which the rest of us, of course, being ignorant Englishmen, weren't, um, he came back with Waiting for Godot, and a group of students put it on at Bristol University, and I went along, you know, thinking, oh, well, there's some, some play. I don't, you know, knew nothing about it or yeah. anything about Beckett at the time either. Never heard of him. And I sat there and this thing unfolded and I, it just changed my life. I, I, I was just, I was wiped out. I mean, I, yeah. I, I just, you know, and is it the words? I don't know. Maybe it was the silences when nobody was saying anything mm-hmm. at all. Uh, well, the de- devastation. Yes, I mean, it was an extraordinary experience. The other, the other theatrical experience that I've had of, of similar impact was um, many, many years ago when I was still in school, grammar school, high school. I went up to London to the West End to see um, production of Hamlet, With uh, um, Paul uh, Schofield. Schofield, yeah, Paul Schofield playing Hamlet. And it was the same thing. Uh, He was indescribably fine. You know, the the idea of being in a theatre or people near you or next to you in seats just fell away and you were just riveted on the stage and those words of the soliloquies and everything, you know, I mean, they were just extraordinary. That, oddly enough, This is a very this is a piece of Canadian arcana that uh, not many people could connect with. But John Mills had been over here in Canada at the Stratford Festival, Mm -hmm. and he had picked up Tiff Finley, and he took him back to London. And Tiff Finley was in that production (laughs) of Paul Uh Scofield, and he was playing Osric which is, I think, as I recall, a non-speaking role, but he doffed his cap and, you know, and made a knee and bowed and, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and generally farted about, you know. And uh, um, I said I said to him many years later, we were sitting in a bar somewhere having a drink, and I said, you know, when I was 17, <laughs> I saw you in <laughs> Scofield Hamlet, and he said, please don't speak of it. <laughs> But, it's like
0: your ECW novel. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, right. For him, yeah. But um, oh, that's
0: lovely. Yeah. Okay, so we're we're at Quill. Yeah. Uh, anything you wanna add on that?
1: Um well I, I I did some some very fine poetry collections there uh, as well that I was pleased with and remained pleased with. Mm-hmm. Richard Uten. Richard Uten, yeah. John mm-hmm. New Love. George Johnson, of course, and uh, Don Coles. I did some good short story collections there too. Yeah, and the end of that was was um, was very strange and I still haven't got my mind around it actually because uh, I don't know if you remember any of this, but there was a time when a Stoppard Publishing, General Publishing, okay. Stoddart, yeah, yeah sorry, he was distributing for a lot of small press publishers. And so he had, you know, vast amounts of their stock in um, his warehouses. And then he went bankrupt and the contents of the warehouses and everything were frozen and the, 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 the rights, you know, uh, were, were held and the publishers couldn't sell their books or anything um, yeah. because they were frozen. They couldn't get the books out to, to, to sell or anything. So it was all terribly unfortunate. The um, The end result of this was that Tim decided that he was finished, that, you know, he he got so much money out in copies of books and everything that were all in uh, Stoddart's warehouse that, you know, uh, he, he just couldn't go on. So he, he declared, he wrote an article, actually, that was published in the Globe and Mail saying that he was finished as a publisher. And he phoned me and he said, uh, not untypically, um, well, you know, I'm done. I, I can't go on. Uh, you know, there's there's no money. It's all collapsed. Um, there's nothing for you to do anymore. So that's it. Didn't say thank you uh, for the previous uh, 18 years. But uh, um, so I then, I, 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 I forget what book I'd fairly recently published something or other anyway dan wells at that time was not a publisher he owned a used bookstore in windsor he was uh, organizing a literary festival in windsor and he was inviting various people to come down and read and perform and things at this festival mm. and he invited me and to read and uh, he he um shows you what a Fine person he is, uh, that he, sa- he said of everybody that he'd invited, he made a point of reading, you know, a book of theirs to, you know, so that he could make polite and informed conversation. I mean, which most organisers of festivals do not do. So what he read was a book that I'd done with Thomas Allen uh, for, for Patrick Crean, who was editing there at the time called An Aesthetic Underground, which was a sort of autobiography. Mm-hmm. and um, It's like he, an orange cover? That, that's right, yeah. yeah. So anyway, he'd read that the night before I was to appear in Windsor, and and it had apparently destroyed him.
0: Ah, you're using his word? Is that I, his word?
1: No, it's mine. No, uh, okay. He was so engaged with this right. book. Uh, that, right, uh, Anyway, I, I sort of... Um, <laughs> I went on and performed.
0: Performed is, is the word that we, we actually brought up in our previous interview about writing.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's performing, yeah. Yes, yeah.
0: sorry to interrupt.
1: So, anyway, after, after I'd been reading that night, um, I, you know, he said, uh, you know, shall we go out for a drink? And I said, yeah, sure. And uh, we went out and drank far too much scotch and were talking and talking and talking and talking. And I was very attracted to Dan. I thought that he was a really, really interesting and nice person. And what he knew surprised me. So he said to me at at some point... um, I'd been in his bookstore the the, the, the the previous afternoon, and I knew he was pretty serious because he had some books in there that surprised me as well. I mean, very, you know, recherché and pretty good stuff. You mm. know, and I, I'd cast my eye over, over all this and w- was already forming opinions. So he said to me, "I think what I really would like to do, you know, I think I would like to become a publisher, you know, possibly in our cups by this time." I I said to him, well, I'll help you. Mm. Um, and I said, you know, the the, the problem is that uh, you can't get writers with reputations to give you books to an unknown person who's just starting a press out. It doesn't even exist at this point. Mm. I said, Do you know, no writer of any quality is going to deal with you at all. Mm. I said, and the only way that you can get going is if I get hold of some people with reputations and get a single short story from them and then you can publish that as a uh, a separate short story, you know, bind it up nicely and, and, you know, nice covers and stuff and put them out as like pamphlets, basically, you know. Yeah. And I said, and then... You will have all these names behind you that you can then approach somebody and say, you know, do you want to send us your manuscript kind of thing? Look at who we've published before. So this is this is the sort of plan I laid out to him. And I I said to him, you know, probably boastfully, but accurately, as it turned out, I said, I can make you into the best small press in Canada. And he was sort of silent and he looked down and away from me and sort of down at the table. And then he said, I don't want to be the best small press in Canada. And I said, Well what do you want? And he said, I want to be Andre Deutsch. And I thought, Oh boy, oh boy have I connected into what I want. You He's know, got ambition. Well his view his his view wasn't Piddling around in Canada, it was to, to take in the best from the world that he could get, as as all big publishers do, you know. Mm. And mm. and he has done this with incredible success. And also, I mean, we became and remain very close friends, you know. So, and I'm yeah, still, I am still I, full of admiration for him.
0: Yes. Well, you say in the book that you love him.
1: Yes, I do.
0: I don't know about incredible success in Canada. In fact, I think it's very difficult for a publisher with any big ambition to, if they want to service the Canadian market, to be hugely successful. He's been commenting on
1: that lately. Yeah, I, I but I mean, you know, this is the same question over again. He can service that part of the Canadian population which is capable of reading the books that he's putting out.
0: Yes, and what's stopping him from being a worldwide publisher? Is there anything
1: stopping him? Uh, the uh, lack of interest in England and the United States in the books that he's publishing, although, although the books that he's publishing from Europe Yeah. Sell in the United States largely, and Canadian books, of course, don't. But, uh, yeah, Yeah. the the, the books that he does in translation and everything are, are selling incredibly well in the United States. They're very, very interested. For example... Well, the, you know, the the translations of uh, Roy Jacobson and um, the, you know, we did Duck's Newbury Port. That's an interesting story. uh, Indeed it is. And I mean, for example, he sold 45,000 copies of that book.
0: And that's a big, challenging book.
1: That's a book that every major publisher in the United States and Canada rejected. And uh, we did it. That's the thing. Uh, I think you, at one point,
0: you say in your book that you talk about the the reason that you wrote this book. I I like the back and forth, incidentally, in uh, Temerity and Gaul between you and and Dan. There's some nice. I mean, there's a fair amount of mutual backslapping, but it's also interesting and enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, but there's a point where he says something like, you know, you have you don't have anything to prove. And this is what's interesting to me about your career. Is you've put your imprint on Canadian writing in a big way. And you've got hundreds of books to prove it. They're not going to go anywhere. I mean, unless they go in the dumpster, they're going to stick around. You've achieved. And this is what he says. And then you say... If I felt like I'd done that, I wouldn't have spent sixteen bloody months on this book.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I can't
0: help but think the way that Dan does.
1: Well, uh, you know, I mean, what I'm what I'm saying is that you know, after fifty years, uh, a book of mine will sell five hundred copies. You know, so I'm I always come back to John Meisel's You know, he ascribes all the woes of Canadian culture to the lack of a. It's just we just
0: don't have the population. It's and and a part of that is there's all sorts of reasons for that. Yeah, you know, and all sorts of some ugly reasons.
1: Yeah, but whatever the reasons, it is so. It is so,
0: but okay, you did the best you could. so,
1: So, what are you arguing
0: about? Well, I'm not. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm saying you feel like you haven't done a good job or something. And what I'm saying, along with him, is, Jesus, you've published two hundred, more than 200 books. Mm. Come on.
1: But to to what reception is the question? Well, the, I'm the I'm listen,
0: thinking. anyone who does anything like I'm doing and like you're, you have to accept that most people don't give a shit. Mm. Uh, you, you just accept that. And do the best you can do. Yes, well, that's and, and what, then that's, you die. That's all I've been doing. <laughs> well, and you've been you've been doing it admirably. And uh, thank you for talking to me about it.
1: A great pleasure.
0: John Metcalf, without an E, is the senior fiction editor at Biblioasis and lives in Ottawa with his wife, Myrna, who's been very quiet and respectful respectful is the word. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks again. A pleasure.